You were doing the lion's shares of the work there, though. It felt good. Do you feel like a lion? A lioness? Yeah, you know what I do. I do. Hear me roar. Roar. That's the pride that I'm looking for. (laughs) (laughs) So matter of fact. (laughs) Yeah, roar. It's more of a roar. Yeah, roar. Roar! (laughs) Oh boy. Took water at the wrong time. I'll spit it out. Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Randall Chlo, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water and Waste Digest. And I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor for Stormwater Solutions. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will touch on federal water news, including potential WOTUS updates, the confirmation of Erotica Fox to the U.S. EPA Office of Water, and movement on some federal infrastructure funding. Finally, our interview this month is with Brad Clements. He is the Corporate Account Manager for the Lodging Segment for Nalco Water. I spoke with Brad about sustainable hotel water management and how one water principles can play a role in that. But before we dig into this month's interview, let's touch on some news. So I'll start with a quick update, uh, a very quick update on WOTUS. And briefly, as there isn't much progress on this yet besides an announcement of intent, the US EPA and the Department of the Army announced an intent to initiate a new rulemaking process that restores protections in place prior to the 2015 Waters of the United States, also known as WOTUS, implementation. Interestingly, the EPA specified that the new rule would establish a, quote, durable definition, end quote, of WOTUS, and also stressed the need to involve community stakeholders and listen to input, which is a trend that we have been seeing play out um, with other EPA issues like the pending updates to the lead and copper rule revisions as well. EPA Administrator Michael Regan indicated that the new rule would not return to the verbatim of the Obama era regulation and would draw heavily on community input. So this is something definitely worth keeping our eye on as this has was a very important issue when the Trump administration changed the rule and we discussed it on the podcast at that time. But the timeline of these updates are not clear. So we will keep you posted, listeners, as always, and I will uh, toss it over to Bob. Yeah, before I move on to the news item about Radhika, I wanted to touch on one quick thing with that. Radhika talked about at the uh, AWWA ACE 21, like all virtual show, um, she was discussing this this topic of, of WOTUS and whatnot. And she specifically talked about one of the things that you noted there of this durable definition. They're looking to create something that stands the test of time, that isn't going to be changed every single administration. They want something that actually makes sense and is useful and will happen over the long term. We kind of see this already with the lead and copper rule stuff of talking to all these different stakeholders to create something that will last a long time and effectively manages the situation that they find themselves in. So wanted to touch on that first before we go into Radhika Fox being the new head of EPA Water. 
She was officially confirmed to the position of Assistant Administrator for the EPA Office of Water uh, earlier in June. We've mentioned this news as her her role was kind of pending prior to this, but it is now official. So we want to congratulate Radhika on that on that role. Prior to being the Assistant Administrator for the EPA Office of Water, she was the CEO for the U.S. Water Alliance. And prior to that, she worked with uh, San Francisco PUC. Um, now that she's confirmed, she has also become the first woman of color and the first individual of Asian heritage to be nominated and confirmed to lead that office. So a big congratulations to Radhika. We're very, we all very much enjoy Radhika. She's been on the podcast a couple times. Her vision for things is very interesting. And we've, we've, we actually have incorporated a lot of her vision into how we talk about things on this podcast. So if you want to learn more about her vision and whatnot, we have an article in our show notes on Water and Waste Digest that kind of goes into depth a little bit on what those key terms are. Um, Lauren and Katie, is there anything that you'd like to add to congratulating Radhika to, to that office, that position? I was just going to reiterate your congratulations. I She's been a great resource to us, and I know that she'll do great things with EPA. So I'm, I'm excited to see what she does in her term. And absolutely. So true to your point that um, some of her her vision and her perspective to water has helped guide and shape a little bit of the direction of our One Water messaging and how we communicate and ask questions and think critically about what our nation's infrastructure is facing. So we are grateful and eager to see what is ahead. Yeah, yeah. Very much looking forward to it. And we can see already from the things that have happened during her period uh, of, of interim leadership, what, what she's already done. Um, so the track record that we've seen is what we expect to see moving forward as well. And I also wanted to note that as we're recording this, we're seeing some breaking news. On July 1st, the U.S. House of Representatives passed House Resolution 3684, the Invest in America Act. This includes key provisions authorizing substantial new funding for critical clean water and drinking water programs. It has the first ever reauthorization of the Clean Water State Revolving Fund at, a, at an historic level of $40 billion over five years. Um, this is also the same as the drinking water SRF uh, for the same amount of funding over the same course of time. And it also includes reauthorization of the sewer overflow and stormwater reuse municipal grants at $2 billion over five years. So some good funding heading to the stormwater sector. We see that we saw that these items were also included in the Drinking Water and Wastewater Infrastructure Act that was passed by the Senate in late April. So with these being basically the same levels of funding, there seems to be consensus in both the Senate and the House on this. So we expect it to move forward without much friction because of that agreement and whatnot. So this really exciting news. We'll keep be keeping a tabs on that. So check our, our websites and everything often to get some news on kind of where things stand and uh, when that stuff will be officially fully authorized. And further in infrastructure funding, on June 24th, U.S. President Joe Biden and a bipartisan group of 21 senators reached a $1.2 trillion infrastructure compromise. The breakthrough ends a weeks-long stalemate over the cost of the infrastructure investment, according to USA Today. The compromise does not mark a guarantee to pass Congress, but with the backing of 11 Republican senators and 10 moderate Democrats, the infrastructure bill would exceed the 60 votes required to overcome a filibuster. However, Biden has said he will not sign the bipartisan infrastructure bill into law unless a reconciliation bill with human infrastructure is also on his desk. So as this, you know, makes progress, we'll be sure to keep track on all of our websites as well. 
but I mean, nice to see that there's a compromise has been made. So. Yeah, and it sounds like just from our initial talking before this call as well, this situation is really in flux right now. Um, so we felt like we wanted to touch on it for our audience because whatever's coming is going to be important, but nothing definitive in the works at the moment, as far as we can see. One of the big things to note with this too is the bipartisanship displayed here. There's 11 Republican senators and 10 uh, Democratic uh, senators. You're seeing a pretty equal play across that. I think this is some. This is something that. Biden specifically ran on on like working across the aisle to combine things together and find those compromises. So to me, this is a good step forward in showcasing that aspect and making sure that he's still reaching the goals that he wants to reach, even if he has to pull back on certain funding levels and whatnot. So just wanted to note there is, uh, it seems to be a pretty good bipartisan leadership there that was something that was part of Biden's whole administrative uh, plan and whatnot. All right. Well, we'll keep listeners posted. We'll keep our tabs. But now let's head on over into our interview for this episode. So I talked with Brad Clements. He's corporate account manager lodging segment for Nalco Water. We talked about sustainable hotel water management and how one water principles can play a role. We also talked a little bit about barriers to efficient hotel water management beyond just quantity, quality as well. So let's head on over into that interview. Welcome to Talking Underwater, One Water, One Podcast. I'm Lauren Delcello, the Managing Editor for Water Quality Products, and I am joined today by Brad Clements. He is the Senior Corporate Account Manager Lodging Segment for Nalco Water. Welcome to the call today, Brad. Thanks for having me, Lauren. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for popping on. Yeah, I'm so great to meet you. And I hope you don't mind if I reveal your secret sauce that this is your first podcast ever. And we're so glad to have you on the show. Oh, throw me under the bus (laughs) from the very beginning, Lauren. I like it. (laughs) All in good fun, though, right? We're going to have a great time and we're going to dig into some good questions about sustainable hotel water management. So I thank you for your time. First, let's just kind of dig into it. Let's get going with some overarching questions then. So I'll start off with what are barriers to efficient hotel water management? And as we're chatting, we're really in the midst of a historic drought. So I want to ask specifically as well about barriers exasperated by water scarce regions also. Great question. I think before I can fully dig into that, I want to talk a little bit about the water scarcity. I know the article touches on this, but really water scarcity is the combination of quality and the quantity that's available. So um, you could have a lot of water. And if the water's not good to drink or not usable for your equipment or too expensive to reuse, it creates just as many challenges, right? So um, 40% of the world's population right now is underwater stress. Um, We're feeling that right now in Las Vegas, Southern California, um, in the heat waves that are hitting the Midwest and uh, the the Northwest of the country right now um, are, are adding to that. And, you know, if things don't change, this may become more normal than it has been in the past for us. Um, the World Resources Institute is, is just put out an article that says by 2030 that the demand for water um, will exceed the available clean water to be used by 56%. So we are seeing climate changing that are impacting this um, and the direction we're heading from a sustainability standpoint on water is uh, 
definitely disheartening. <laughs> and there's a lot of opportunities to fix that. So a um, couple other things on the, the quality piece of this. I think um, a lot of times we think about quality of water is, is it drinkable, right? Most of the water in the United States and North America is, is very clean for consumption from a health standpoint. Um, the Clean Water Act in the United States allows 500 visible counts of bacteria per milliliter. And that's an acceptable amount for healthy folks, right, that are drinking this water. Um, but the other side of quality, when we talk about reuse and, and using water efficiently, is the natural makeup of the water, right? So if you're in Atlanta, Georgia, or New York City, you have really good water. It's, it's soft. You can reuse it effectively in cooling towers. Um, you can allow it to cycle up in pools and other environments. Um, it's very good water. If you're in Odessa, Texas, or New Orleans, it is very, very difficult water. Um, it's still safe to drink, but as we start using it in hotels, in, in commercial buildings, in operations, it becomes a massive, massive challenge just because the complexity of the water and how many dissolved solids are in it when it comes into the process. So, um, you know, your your second part of the question was, you know, how do the barriers really affect hotels? Um, and, you know, the <clears throat> impact on hotels right now is most people think that water is cheap and available because you know your your hotel's right next to a lake or 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 it's just abundant and it's cheap because your your bill's not that expensive and I, i'm excited to talk a little bit about today about the hidden costs that are there as well whether that's utility or labor but i do think that's something holding the industry back from looking at sustainability is understanding really the true cost of that water that's going down the drain in your property yeah. So first, I love, love, love that you are stressing um, not just the quantity side, but the quality side too, right? Because there are two sides to that coin, and we really do tend to zero in on one or the other, depending on what our specialty is or what facet of the water cycle we work on or whatnots. So I love that you're focusing in on that. But let's dig deeper into the hidden cost then. And I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on, on some of the perspectives that um, you know I or our listeners may not think of as often. So what costs are associated with hotel water besides the obvious things like pools, faucets, et cetera, the things that um, your normal folks see? Yeah, so in the front of the house, right, you've got decorative fountains, you take showers, you wash your hands, there may be some irrigation happening, but most of the costs associated with water in a building aren't the things that the customers are going to see. Um, it, it is. The water comes into the building. If it's used for cooling or heating, you're using either electric or gas energy, right, to actually heat the water. Um, if you have a centralized cooling system, you're cooling that water for a function, right, inside the building and sending in many cases 50 degree water through the building um, to actually provide HVAC systems for the building. So you're spending a lot of money on the water in addition to what it costs for coming in and what it costs for going down the drain and sewer. So all that impacts it. Um, you know, if you have a hotel that's 20 stories, I think you'd be surprised how much it costs just to pump the water up from the basement where it's coming in up to the 20th floor. So those all impact it. And then uh, right now in the industry, um, you guys know that you're scrambling, everybody's scrambling um, for labor 
right now. Yeah. And the labor costs associated with maintaining these systems, with chemically treating these systems, um, with really working with the water inside your building, whether that is a pool and you're chemically treating it. If you have to drain your pool, it's not just the water and refilling the water. It is all the chemistry that goes in there to balance the alkalinity, um, all the, the chlorine that goes in there or, or chloramines or whatever you're disinfecting it with um, to make sure that you're maintaining that water. So the total cost as it relates to water is the energy to heat it, the energy to cool it, the labor. And then there's also some bigger picture things. Um, regulatory risks, you're dumping water down the drain that's not allowed. Um, the EPA and or your, your local agencies um, may not um, like that if that's happening and there may be fines associated with it or just additional time and energy invested on something that shouldn't happen from a regulatory standpoint. And there's reputational risk as well. Um, what do I mean by that? It's, it's really... If we're in the midst of a drought in Las Vegas and your irrigation system is using more water than the, than the neighborhood down the street's allowed to use to water the grass, at least from the, their perspective, they're going to see that you're spending more water on tourists and guests than at least that particular property cares about their neighbors and their community. So from a reputational standpoint, um, there, there's also a risk associated there. And then depending where you are in the country, it could be, you know, a water base and a watershed issue um, or even just perception as it relates to that. I'll go back to Las Vegas, who was really struggling with, with water in the geography and losing water. Um, if you're blatantly wasting water, how does that look for you, for the community? Um, so there are a lot of risks associated. There's the, the really the, the financially quantifiable ones which are the energy usage, the gas usage, um, the labor associated with it, the chemicals that are going down the drain, and obviously the makeup water and sewer costs if you have them. But then there's the big picture items. It's just the perspective of your community you're in. Are you being a good steward of that community and using those resources as wisely as you can? Um, so I definitely want to come back to that element a little further in our chat. I'm interested that you already dug into that kind of like community engagement, community awareness about water sustainability issues aspect initially. So I want to come back a little teaser to how that drives technology development. But first, let's go back a touch to in your response to the first question, you were talking about um, quality and quantity. So beyond drinking water, how does quality impact cooling tower management and the reuse cycle? You got into this a little bit, but I want you to kind of get in the weeds with me here. Okay, so as we dig into the weeds, I think the first <laughs> thing, <laughs> Lauren, um, I want everybody to understand that every county typically has different water. Right? Yes. County to county, the mineral makeup of that water could be drastically different. So when we allow for cycles of concentration in you know, Atlanta, Georgia, we're able to get eight to 10 cycles depending on some factors inside the building, which means in a cooling tower, we're able to make that water work for you eight to 10 times, which when you go beyond that, um, there's a rate of diminishing return. It just doesn't make much more sense to go much higher than that from a financial standpoint, from a reuse standpoint, and from a risk reward standpoint. But I mentioned Odessa, Texas, different story. You're getting to use the water twice with the natural mineral content. So it's coming into the system, dissolved solids at around 1200. 
Um, in Atlanta, Georgia, it's coming in around 120. So this has a lot more natural minerals in it and some some natural things, but as far as water treaters go, some bad characters, get a lot of calcium magnesium, a lot of silica um, that really impact naturally the reuse of that water. So um, the the water coming in definitely determines how well you can reuse it naturally. Now there's things you can do. There's technologies that you can put in place to, to level those playing fields, but you some areas of the country are blessed with really good water that we can reuse very effectively in the cooling tower with just the right chemical treatment. Um, you know, there are unique tools out there as well to match that mineral content. Um, we use, you know, a, a, a computer algorithm to match the minerals in the system to the right product to specifically match that up on what product best suits you and allows us to increase the cycles because there are so many different breakdowns uh, in the country and so many different types of water. So depending on where you are, it drastically impacts uh, your opportunity to reuse um, without major investments. As, um, as a, uh, a building manager, I imagine that's pretty complicated to keep up with considering that each region has very specific um, water quality needs or, or regulatory needs in place to meet those as well. Yeah, especially if you're, you know, if you're operating at a property and you're not bouncing around and you're there for a long time, you can learn it. Or mm -hmm. if you're a property owner and you have property in three geographies, right. if you're an owner operator that has a hundred locations, it's impossible. I mean, really. Um, right. You like can't manage treatment, every system the same. Absolutely. And I feel like water treatment in general, it's this. I don't know, this dark box that nobody even wants to open, right? So having a partner that really can open that box for you and shine some light into it, some simplistic ways, whether that's technology that allows you to see whether you're having scaling, biofouling, corrosion in the system easily with, you know, red, white, and or red, green, and yellow, right? Just to tell you whether it's good, bad, or ugly, I think makes things easier for hoteliers as they're trying to run their business, right? They're trying to run a hotel and create a, an environment. They can't know what minerals are in the water yeah. and getting to the, the maximized cycles of concentration in a cooling tower. That's really interesting to me because um, I hear a lot from our readership and our audience that one of the things they love about working in water is that it's kind of like this really interesting puzzle. No system is the same. Um, it's never the same um, problem to solve. So it's kind of a cool place to be if you think of it from that way. But so we'll go back for a minute. You talked about regional concerns. Are there considerations to keep in mind where when choosing where to target your water savings initiative beyond that? Absolutely. I mean, first, there's some low-hanging fruit. Um, we, we talked about cooling towers in the last question, and that is a very nice place to go look at water savings because it's um, it's one of the largest users. In many mm -hmm. cases, in a hotel, it is the largest water user, more than people flushing the toilets and running the sinks. So that's some low-hanging fruit, and there's definitely technology and partners out there that can work with you um, to increase your cycles of concentration. But there's concerns too from a sustainability standpoint that we see all the time. And I work with our clients on, um, when we manage water and we talk about quality, there's a health side to that as well. So if 
you are at the Atlanta airport and you, having low flow sinks makes a lot of sense. You might have 20,000 people use those sinks in a day. But a hotel, if you put low flow sinks at the pool house bathroom, Mm -hmm. that's 200 yards away from the main line coming in, it's never going to be consumed enough to get fresh water to it. So you're basically creating a stagnant dead leg in your system um, that's going to grow bacteria. It could be benign or it could be something like Legionella that could be scary and get your guests or employees sick. So I think being thoughtful about where is the best place to use the tools that are available, whether that's a cooling tower or that's low flow in the lobby, that's a super busy bathroom or the bathroom that the main restaurant uses, but does it make sense to use at the pool house? Um, and if, it, if, if you think it does, right, and you have enough flow on the off season, are you guys flushing that water from a health standpoint? So while we talk about sustainability, I wanna make sure we, we manage that, the health of that system as well, um, particularly on the potable water side, but also in the industrial cooling water side, that, that health piece of it with waterborne pathogens is definitely a major concern in the lodging industry right now. Mm -hmm. So just be thoughtful or, or work with a partner that does this every day um, as you guys are trying to find these sustainability options and, and find the best way to reuse those waters. Yeah, and we haven't even we haven't even touched the iceberg that is waterborne pathogens in this discussion today, too, which we could have a whole separate podcast chat on. It's a really hot topic right now, especially with you know the relationship between Legionnaire symptoms and COVID-19 symptoms and that whole mess, but we'll digress away from it for a moment. So um, definitely hear you repeating and coming back to the fact that no two systems are alike and that you have to really think critically about how to address them though. Yeah, I mean, it, it all comes down to the water coming into the building and that creates your opportunities, what you're using the water for. And then a, a big piece of the puzzle is just the design of the building too, the age of the building. So there's a lot of different factors that, um, you know, as, as water treaters, we come in, as you mentioned, it, it's like a puzzle but to puzzle, water is a puzzle to start with. And then you throw in a bunch of other variables that impact the problem. And it's, it's fun to step in and look at all those variables and help um, you know, folks that don't do this for a living understand the best solution for them yeah. and what yeah. tools are available and options for them to choose from to uh, at least use the water as wisely as they can and as safely as they can. So two more questions from me. We're doing really great on time. And these are ones I'm really excited to hear your responses to because um, I, I, I don't know what you're gonna say. So I'm excited to learn. Um, first, I hinted on this earlier. Are you seeing a rise in consumer customer awareness regarding sustainable hotel water management? And if so, how is technology evolving to meet this? I would say the short answer is yes and no. I think oh, um, okay. hotel operators right now are very, very focused on reopening safely because yeah. of the pandemic. And they're very focused on the labor shortage right now. I talked to VPs that are cleaning rooms right now and GMs that are cleaning rooms right now. So I think the industry is in a state that, yes, everybody understands that this is incredibly important. It's not going away. And we're gonna be talking about this for years to come. But as we come out of the pandemic, and um, we've encountered some 
new challenges in this specific industry, right? In the lodging industry on labor, as well as safely opening. Um, what do we do with spaces that aren't being used that often right now um, because of the pandemic? It's been interesting that some of this stuff I feel like has been backburnered, not that it's not important, just that it's not urgent, mm -hmm. like getting rooms clean for guests. Um, a lot of the hotels are operating at higher occupancy than they did it in 2019, but half the staff. So the short answer is yes and no. Long term, yes, people are excited about the opportunities. Um, tools in the industry continue to progress to help them um, when they're ready. There's a lot of tools out there right now, water flow intelligence, um, you know, the smart water navigator, mm -hmm. that Nalco's put out there to help. The interest really comes down to me on that industry stabilizing a little bit. And unless this is more urgent than getting guests in room and getting those rooms clean so guests can use it, until that levels out a little bit, I think it will be backburnered, which is expected. I mean, their business is to be hospitable and bring in guests on a regular basis. But long term, we do feel like sustainability is going to be one of the biggest drivers in lodging. And people want to do the right thing for their community um, and for this precious resource and use it as wisely as they can. So you surprised me a little bit, but also very logical, very logical when you break it down like that, certainly. So I guess we're just going to have to have you back on the podcast next year to talk about how these trends are evolving and also the um, the smart water side of it as well, how smart water systems are kind of um, evolving the role of water management in uh, commercial or industrial spaces as well. So I would love to come back anytime on, on either of those subjects. So you just let me know and I would love to come back and support the podcast. Oh, good. So we didn't scare you away. Great. <laughs> so last question then, this is kind of the big one because we are talking underwater one water, one podcast, and that's on the one water facet. So we haven't dug into this. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts as there are a lot of aspects that come into play when we talk about reuse and sustainability. And my question is, how can one water principles play a role in sustainable hotel water management? I, I think the one water principles and just the concept of reusing where you can um, and making sure that it even potentially like Las Vegas gets back to your own community, evaporating as little water as you want. So I think depending on regionally, um, you're going to have some different drivers for this. But understanding that reuse really depends on the quality of the water, right? And having a partner to help you reuse it as much as you can is going to help you know, the one water principle as well. And then that there's a lot of low hanging fruit, but a lot of those have been done. A lot of people have low, you know, low flow faucets now. Now, whether they have them in the pool house or not, hopefully if you have them in the pool house, you're getting rid of it tomorrow. But if you don't, um, <laughs> if you don't have it in the pool house, right, and you're using that tool really wisely from a low flow perspective, you know, there are really some low hanging fruits around cooling towers, which from, Water treatment standpoint, I mentioned earlier, it really is like a black box. You bring in a partner, they can really show you the way to some major savings as it's your biggest user. And it's probably the area as a GM or a EVP or even, you know, even a chief engineer, it's probably the area you know the least about. We all understand portable water systems pretty well, maybe general heating and cooling systems. But when you get into the cooling tower and some of the closed loops, there's a lot of opportunities there. 
And sometimes it's just closing a valve. I've got an example of a hotel we picked up about a year ago. We saved them almost $20,000 by just asking the question, is this hot water from this hot water loop that you just spent all this money heating up supposed to go directly to the drain? And it was just flowing out at, you know, probably eight GPM a minute down the drain at they paid all this money in natural gas to heat it up. So it doesn't have to be complicated um, when you're looking at the opportunities in your property from a, from a financial perspective, but also from a sustainability perspective. If you see something going down the drain, ask the question, should it be? Um, and I think all these concepts and taking sustainability into 2022 and into the future beyond knowing that we have some challenges with water um, really, really lends itself to the one water principles that you guys talk about on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for um, tackling that question. I appreciate it. And we'll have to hold our breath and wait and see what the future brings, what comes. But thank you for hopping on the call with me today, Brad. A pleasure to learn together. Thank you for having me. And uh, I will be looking for my next invite. Thank you so much for that interview, Brad. It's been lovely to learn from you and share that expertise with our listeners. So we appreciate your time. Now on to a little bit of housekeeping as we wrap up the episode today. First, I just wanted to uh, give a shout out and a call out to listeners that the podcast hosts are starting to plan what sorts of topics we'd like to discuss next year. So we'd love to hear from you. What kinds of topics are you wondering about? What do you want to hear about on the show? What's causing you problems in your business that you could use some expert advice with? Give us some feedback at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com. And we'd love to hear your insights. Bob, over to you. Yeah, so once again, I'm going to talk about our water pavilion, the Scranton Gillette Communications Water Group, which includes Water and Waste Digest and Stormwater Solutions, is bringing a water pavilion to the Utility Expo September 28th to 30th at the Kentucky Exposition Center in Louisville, Kentucky. You can register for that event today at sgcwaterpavilion.com. Also, we've launched a Western Water Crisis Hub on Water and Waste Digest, which is a definitive resource on the drought in the Western U.S. Check back daily to learn about how communities and utilities are coping with the drought, the conversations they're having about water resources, and the solutions being presented to overcome that drought. This will include news and and articles from all of our brands, not just Water and Waste Digest, so check back regularly to see some cool stuff. And top project nominations are still open for Stormwater Solutions, but they're only open until July 30th, so make sure you submit your project soon. You can do so at bit.ly slash SWS Top Projects 2021. And I want to invite all of you to attend the next uh, webinar event for, from Stormwater Solutions on July 22nd. We're bringing you two webinars, both worth, worth a PDH credit on regulations and compliance. You can register for free at bit.ly slash SWS July webinar. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and really wherever you can get podcasts. You can also reach us at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Thanks for listening.